Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Jason Josephson Storm, Chair and Associate Professor of Religion at Williams College. Josephson Storm's research interests include East Asian religions and philosophy, European intellectual history, and theories of religion, philosophy, and sociology. His first book, The Invention of Religion in Japan, was published in 2012. More recently, The Myth of Disenchantment, Magic, Modernity, and the Birth of Human Sciences was published in 2017. Forthcoming is Absolute Disruption, The Future of Theory After Postmodernism. Josephson Storm gave a talk based on the myth of disenchantment at the UO on May 3rd, 2018, as a guest of the Department of Religious Studies. Thanks, Jason, for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. It's great. Great to be here. So first, let's take you back yeah. in your career and begin with what led to your interest in East Asian religion and philosophy? Um, there's a long story there. So both of my parents are philosophers, and I grew up kind of hearing about Kant. I, I can't remember a point in my life when I didn't know who Kant was, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. But yeah, also, yeah. my parents came out of the uh, philosophy departments in the 1960s, and they were interested already in Asian philosophy and thought, and so uh, they were part of a Zen practice community, and I grew up sort of meditating with a bunch of, of folk there. Um, and so already from a young age, I was interested in philosophy and in a lot of the forms of philosophy uh, associated with East Asia, particularly Chinese and Japanese philosophy. And when I had gone as an undergraduate to study those things, the mainstream philosophy departments didn't think they counted as philosophy. So then that pushed me more into the religion department where we could talk about Chuangsa or whatever. And at, at that moment also, I got really introduced to continental philosophy, which also was an ex another exiled discipline from the philosophy department and very different than the analytic philosophy my father did. So I just kind of got drawn into those two worlds kind of in parallel, yeah. So just give us a kind of snapshot of the, the first book, The Invention of Religion in Japan. Sure, so um, The Invention of Religion in Japan uh, is about Japanese intellectuals encountering the term religion for the first time and trying to figure out how to translate it, trying to figure out what, if anything, in Japan counted as a religion, um, and then noting that the term religion was often paired with in contrasting ways with some kind of notion of science or some kind of notion of superstition or secular statecraft. So what that book does is it's a long history of the Japanese uh, transnational encounter, uh, both looking at in, in the first part of the book from the 1850s to the 1910 or so, looking at translation debates and Japanese attempts to figure out um, whether they could guarantee freedom of religion and what freedom of religion was supposed to be. Uh, and then I did a backstory where I looked at an early Jesuit encounter um, in the so-called Jesuit century, and I look at how they understood Christianity without a term for religion in place. And, I, and, and that I sort of call the heretical anthropology because I read anthropologists on both sides of the colonial encounter. So I was able to read uh, Portuguese writings about Japan in the same moment to read Japanese writings about the Portuguese, mm. and I was really interested in the kinds of miscommunications or different conceptual uh, categories of uh, the various uh, players in that kind of moment. Mm. So that, yeah, that became my first book, yeah. So how did you get from the invention of religion in Japan to doing your second book on European intellectual history? How, how, how did you yeah, so I, always from the beginning, I was very interested in the period and in sort of questions rather than in geographies. Mm -hmm. And I had been trained to do 1600 to the present in Japan, but in a broad international context. And it was pretty easy in a way intellectually to make that shift. But um, concretely what happened was I was in Japan doing research uh, in 2011 for what I thought was gonna be my second book. And um, uh, I, I say a little bit in the intro to this, but just to keep, take a long story short, I, I happened to be there when the um, Fukushima incident happened, when the Tohoku earthquake happened. And um, 
I was uh, in Kyoto, which was very far away from the catastrophe itself, um, but it made it impossible for me to go to the archive I'd planned, been planning to go to in Tokyo to do additional research on that. And I had a conversation um, with some, some random folk, basically, um, about the project I was working on then, which was about contemporary Japanese beliefs in talismans and ghosts, and sort of I was interested in the hybridities between technology and for lack of a better word, magic in contemporary Japan. And some, uh, when I was explaining the project to a Western interlocutor, he said basically, oh, but Asia is mystical or something. And I really bothered me, and because he, he claimed that, that they, those kind of beliefs didn't exist in the West, but I wondered if that was truly the case. And so I found myself in Germany uh, instead of Japan, in part uh, because I could, I found, found some funding there. Um, and so uh, I ended up kind of trying to ask this question about magical belief basically in European history, sort of, yeah, there instead. So tell, tell the story about your grandmother. Yeah, so part of the reason that I knew that um, the, the, the West wasn't disenchanted is that my grandmother, Felicitas Goodman, was a very famous anthropologist. Um, one of her books, The uh, Exorcism of uh, Emily Rose, or The Possession of Annalise Michelle became the film, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and she had um, spent a lot of time studying Pentecostal communities in Mexico and what have you. Um, and in her old age, she had, so to speak, gone native. She had moved to the Puaque Reservation in New Mexico, and she had started participating in local ceremonies and then come to believe that there really were spirits. And uh, growing up, my parents would often um, send me to my grandmother's for the summer because my parents were trying to do their academic research and my grandmother was there. And grandmother's amazing woman, probably the single biggest influence on my intellectual trajectory. And during the summers, she would have people come to these workshops, uh, famous academics in some cases, scholars from Mexico, from uh, Germany and from the United States. And they would talk about ghosts and things like that. And I never quite bought into the ghost picture, but I thought, found the whole environment richly fascinating. And so I knew, or I, I had the hunch that a lot of people were like my grandmother. A lot of them, even if they didn't admit it, because a lot of the people who came to these things in their publications, they never mentioned spirits or ghosts, but on the, on the reservation, they would talk about them as if they believed in them. And I got a sense that that was not atypical, that my grandmother wasn't uh, exceptional in that particular way. She was more exceptional in the fact that after she retired, she was open about it, whereas a lot of other <laughs> of her contemporaries weren't. So, so that gave me the sense that the, the, um, the narratives about uh, disenchantment that we've been telling ourselves at least didn't apply in certain areas. And in particular, I was suspicious of a claim I heard repeated frequently that the human sciences, the humanities and social sciences, were themselves disenchanting or vectors of secular Secularization. I, what I saw instead was the way that anthropologists gave birth to new religious phenomena, studies of shamanism that transformed themselves into neo-shamanic movements, like, for example, Carlos Castaneda, who famously got a PhD in anthropology from UCLA. Um, and so, I mean, that, that is not atypical, uh, and I suspected that there was a longer history of that kind of pattern. Yeah. So, uh, give us the sort of give us the major claims of the book. What so you, you did this research and yeah. tell us what you found. So, uh, in the myth of enchantment. So, basically. Um, to take a step back and give you the broader argument, um, uh, one of the most frequent narratives that we tell ourselves about modernity is that as a people becomes more modern or more modernized, they abandon belief in myths, spirits, and magic. This, often this defining feature of modernity is often presented as disenchantment. Disenchantment is the thing that signals modern thought, at least that's the narrative, and it's supposed to apply to Western Europe, if not the rest of the world. Um, and But it turns out, if you look at contemporary sociological data of the present in America or Great Britain or Germany, um, it looks like something like 60 to 70 percent of Americans believe in paranormal phenomena. Um, I don't remember that exact percentage, I'll have to check, but, um, but it's roughly comparable in both, in countries that are also much more secularized than the United States, according to conventional measures. So, 
in the United States, 90% of people believe in God, but a lot of people believe in ghosts. In Britain, maybe 30% of people believe in God, but 37% of people believe in ghosts. Uh, for example, the Daily Mail ran something with the title, More Britons Believe in Ghosts Than God. And I mean, they, they sensationalize it, but this pattern continues to hold insofar as uh, there is extensive belief in the supernatural and ghosts and astrology, psychic powers or what have you, um, throughout what is supposed to be the heartland of modernity and the heartland of disenchantment. So having, in the first chapter, I survey that sociological data and I do a little bit of mini ethnographic stuff uh, around coffee shops where I live, which you know, are covered with flyers on crystal healing and, and what have you. Um, and then I decided to look at the longer history of that because the question became for me, well, if contemporary America and Europe are not disenchanted, how do we get the narrative that they were disenchanted? And then I discovered that that narrative had been articulated particularly uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, often mostly in Germany, but uh, in Germany, Britain, and France. And um, that created even more of a problem because that's a period of time in which there's a massive spiritualist movement. People are doing seances and table turning. There's also a, a number of very outspoken occult movements of the period, the Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, for example, or later uh, Aleister Crowley, et cetera. So it's a period in which it's overflowing uh, with belief in spirits and magic. So how did that period, and in the very countries where those traditions were most influential, come up with a story that the central feature of modernity is disenchantment? So I set out to answer that. I went through the archive. In terms of my research, I did archival work in Germany Germany, uh, France, uh, Austria, uh, Britain, and some stuff in the United States. And I went through diaries and letters, and what I was interested in were the lives of the theorists of disenchantment themselves, and where, for, what, for lack of a better word, I'll call the occult milieu, intruded into their lives. And I found a lot more interesting things about their beliefs, some of which were public and some of which uh, they, they didn't admit to, but you could find in, in diaries and letters and writings. And in, in so doing, I kind of end up doing a, a grand trajectory of the birth of the modern human sciences uh, and how they reacted to this sort of enchanted milieu in one way or another. Yeah. So, um, so th um, the disenchantment of modernity is a myth. Yeah. Um, and you looked at these foundational figures, and you also put them next to these foundational figures of Western occultism. Yeah. Um, and then there are there are there are much broader implications from your story. So yeah. one of the implications concerns how we understand modernity. And in your account, our understanding of modernity is also mythological. So tell us about that. That's right. I mean, one of the things that I was really, that was really motivating the project is I was interested in this notion of modernity's rupture. So often modernity is described as a disconnect from other modes of thought. Either modernity is supposed to be the, you know, the moment that we suddenly achieved reason or in, in a negative mode, the moment we suddenly became inauthentic or, you know. Um, and what it, those, those narratives of modernity as rupture began to bother me. And uh, in particular, because many of the things that were described as the so-called ruptures of modernity, modernity is so vague. It's a vague category. Uh, people peg it to a whole range of different periods, they define it in a thousand different ways. Often they seem to make the actor the very thing trying to be explained. So when they're talking about why is why are coffee shops this way, people like the modernity or whatever, you know, why is the internet this way, modernity. So it seems like that's uh, turning a periodization into some kind of motor or engine of history. And that I'm, I, I don't believe, I think there's a lot of counter evidence for it. In particular, the narrative of modernity, uh, particularly modernity bundles together all these different processes in the ordinary language. I, I'm not arguing against industrialization or against changing literacy rates or anything like that, but 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 often those things are, are uh, 
integrated in a way that, that is, um, that to me seems analytically suspect. And then in particular, there's a narrative of modernity as this end of myth or as disenchantment that I think is false. And so because of that, what I became interested in is how their different discipline founders developed a language to talk about modernity, how they began to see themselves as exhibiting a rupture. So, I um, mean, it's true in different disciplines. So for example, in sociology uh, with uh, August Comte starts to think of uh, a rupture between industrial society or modern society and preceding more traditional societies becomes a sociological rupture. In psychoanalysis, it became a psychological rupture. Freud begins to think about whether modern thinking is different than primitive thinking, for example. Um, you know, we could keep going through the disciplines, but all of them tend to internalize some notion of a rupture. And often that rupture was tied to a notion of European uniqueness that I think is also artificial. So they were describing it as a both a geographical category and a temporal category. And it, I think all of that bundled together became a kind of pervasive myth. And, it, and the other piece of it, uh, and this is so it leads me to some of my later targets, I want to argue that the notion of postmodernity relies on a, a sort of discredited notion of modernity or a notion of modernity that it's parasitic upon, that it's granting the assumptions of even as it's criticizing them. But it's all very sloppy and messy. For example, the figures who we think of as the canonical founders of, of postmodernism, let's say, uh, you know, famously Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud are often considered the founding figures of postmodernity. And so those same figures, I mean, the, the movements are blurred together. And uh, in, in our contemporary political moment, we think of an opposition between enlightenment and postmodernity. And both of those, as I'll argue, are kind of mythical creations, uh, both insofar as that period had very different valences uh, than, than we kind of back project onto it. And insofar as this notion of a, some kind of radically different form of thought that started out know in the 60s, 70s, or with Nietzsche, doesn't turn out to be as radically different as, as one might imagine. So uh, I, in a way, what I'm trying to pull down are both those two kinds of ways of periodizing and looking at history. So um, in addition to this intervention of um, sort of demythologizing modernity, demythologizing de uh, the myth of disenchantment, yeah. you also, the work also has implications for how we understand or how we ought to be understanding about the human sciences and the humanities going forward. Yeah. So say a little bit about that part. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I have a lot I could say about that. Let me think what, what cross-section <laughs> to give you. I mean, so let me. Well, look, I'm a, yeah. I'm a, I direct a humanities center. Yeah. So I'm particularly interested in the humanities side of it. So, so okay, so one of the, so there are a bunch of interesting things that I think are there, that, that I think are implications of this. And some of those are implications that are explicitly in this book and some of them are in the book that I'm working on right now. Um, so some things that probably won't surprise you. Um, the disciplinary silos, the way that the different humanities and social sciences are divided up are, are arbitrary and, and incredibly artificial. They're based in assumptions that you can disaggregate different kinds of human phenomena in a way that is really, it's anachronistic, it's a product of a particular history, and it's built around kind of anxieties that, that uh, around different or notions of modernity that don't hold. So a lot of, so part of the work, uh, as um, you commented before we started talking, you know, it's, it's quite interdisciplinary. And I'm looking at all these different disciplines because they're really shared habits of thought. They're ways in which that they, they really interpenetrate. And, um, and uh, there's a lot of territorialism that causes them to appear different and the production of specialized vocabulary, but often saying the same thing in very, in, in just in their own disciplinary idioms. So one move that I'm trying to do is push those together. Second, uh, another implication is that the humanities and social sciences have produced feedback on the areas that they purport to study. Mm -hmm. So uh, sociologists here, and this is, had this insight first, and I'm kind of expanding on it, but people like Bourdieu uh, um, and uh, Anthony Giddens and, and company have started talking about reflexive sociology. So basically like 
a society that has sociologists in it is a very particular kind of society. So once sociologists give you a survey, uh, it changes your way of inhabiting the world. Or once sociologists start making government policy, it changes the social order. The very thing that they purport to study is transformed, and it's a feedback loop in some ways, producing self-perpetuating patterns, and in some cases, uh, undermining attempts at prediction, for example, in sociology. In this book, I, I focus on religious studies in particular, and I show how religious studies has had its own kind of feedback loops on the things that it is uh, purporting to analyze, how religious studies gives birth to new mov religious movements, and how uh, new religious movements impact the kinds of things we think of as disciplinary objects in religious studies. So one of the, and I don't think we should fight that. I don't think that's a bad thing, and in fact, it's in some ways answers to some of the crisis of consciousness that we've had in the disciplines, and I think inward looking and reflexivity, I mean, I'm not the first to say this, but it's a powerful tool. One of the things that we cultivate in the humanities is a kind of proper reflexivity. So those are some of the implications. I mean, other things that I'm beginning to work toward in the next project also are that um, one of the ways in which the humanities and social sciences are often seen as different from the natural sciences turns out not to be true. There's a myth of modern scientific, of natural sciences, which is based on a scientific method that people don't actually pursue in most disciplines. Uh, it's based on a notion of physics that doesn't fit biology, that doesn't fit astronomy, that doesn't really fit math. Um, and uh, so, uh, which isn't to say that it, it, it's bunk or anything like that, but, but rather uh, a lot of what happens in the sciences is basically pattern, pattern matching and then sometimes predictive explanation based on pattern matting, matching or uh, sort of methodological um, tools or techniques for further kinds of pattern discovery. And if you think about it that way, um, the human sciences or the humanities and social sciences, sorry, I got excited, I was going a little fast there, um, start to look a lot like the natural sciences. In particular, there's a way in which what we, the kind of work that we do in, uh, in religious studies, in English departments, et cetera, is similar to what happens in biology departments. It's similar to what happens in uh, zoology departments, et cetera. So there's a way in which I think that these, you know, um, we, we've artificially, especially in the English-speaking world, differentiated the humanities off from everything else, whereas uh, in, in point of fact, the modes of thought are, are in many ways very compatible. So there's a, in German, you know, a Wissenschaft includes, the, the term that's often translated as science, um, includes any kind of systematic knowledge, and I think that's a better category than our notion of oh, the only thing that counts as science is, is something, you know, the prestige uh, natural sciences. Mm -hmm. um, so in part, that's, that's the other implication. And I'll add one last one, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop here, but the, the, another thing that I'm working on in the new project is um, we have a notion that uh, in the humanities and social sciences we're supposed to be working for value freedom or working toward value neutrality or that we're somewhere supposed to embody it in our disciplines. I think it was a well-intentioned move when people like Max Weber proposed it uh, in, in Germany in the early 20th century, but we've misunderstood that and have blown it out of proportion. It, it, we've, we've made the assumption that um, value neutrality means that you're not supposed to have any values in the humanities, but actually our language is richly value-laden. The, the very language that we use both as scholars and as ordinary people that talk about our work in sociology or, or, in, or in religious studies or in English, that necessarily is value-laden. It necessarily has values built into it. But because we think we're supposed to be value neutral, what we end up doing is attacking things that are positively had values, but allowing our value criticism to run rampant. So we're masters of critique and the hermeneutics of suspicion, but we're very, we've become very bad in the last few decades at actually sticking up for the values that we believe in. And in fact, that means we often admit the very thing that we're most passionate about in terms of our research. So one of the implications of this book, but I'm amplifying in the next project, is I'm, I want to, to allow people to, encourage people to bring their values to the surface, to think about the kind of things that they're doing that, and I think bringing them to the surface allows us to discuss them and debate them, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's bad. And I think we embracing value neutrality as a value itself, which sounds like a contradiction, but what I think it means also is, is more just an open
openness to other people having different values than us. And I think what Max Weber and company wanted was just you wouldn't fire somebody from a sociology department because they held they voted for a different political party. And I think that's good. We don't want to fire, but that doesn't mean you have to hide or even should suppress the things that make your research important. So in this respect, I think of the humanities as, and, and I'll give you this last little bit on here, as a, as we should, instead of thinking of humanities as just the subject that studies humans, I personally think we should imagine the humanities as disciplines that help make us better humans. So, uh, and, and I've tied to some stuff in, in uh, virtue ethics and some other, you know, uh, contemporary debates around that. Okay, so this other project that you've uh, uh, gestured yeah. toward a couple of times, Absolute Disruption, the Future of Theory After Postmodernism. So, one of the things, I mean, I, in one of your posts, uh, you talked about a post-mortem on postmodernism. So, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the, one of the numerous things that you're interested in pursuing in this in this second book, uh, uh, in this third book, Absolute Disruption, yeah. is that these formerly de rigueur movements, collected under various terms, deconstruction, poststructuralism, French theory, postmodernism, yeah. have collapsed and lost their influence. So you've begun to explain why. Yeah. What what led to this collapse? Yeah. So. To, to give you another little autobiographical moment, so I'm part of the generation that got deconstruction before we got structuralism, before we got whatever was supposed to be modernity. So mm -hmm. for, for, uh, for, from my perspective, the, I grew up with the counter-hegemonic disciplines, and I think that they're incredibly valuable. I, I mean, I spent a bunch of time, you know, I went to Paris to go to see Derrida lecture, and you know, whatever, spent a couple, two years living in Paris trying to attend lectures of whoever was trendy at that particular moment. And I, I find that work inc incredibly valuable. But that said, there are certain kinds of impasses that it encountered, and uh, in particular, um, we could talk about a bunch of different ways to understand those, but um, uh, what happened was in the United States, we took a bunch of competing types of skepticism or different kinds of philosophical enterprises, uh, people who didn't agree with each other, who didn't get along with each other, who thought themselves doing totally different projects, and we bundled them together, uh, sometimes under the name French theory, sometimes under the name post-structuralism, and then more polemically under the term postmodernism, and then sometimes we stuck in art styles and architecture and what have you. Um, the first observation is that the art and architecture that we labeled postmodern is, is mostly stuff from the 70s, maybe up through the 90s, nobody's doing postmodern architecture anymore. Uh, so, I mean, as a periodization, we just flatly we've moved beyond it. The things that, for example, Frederick Jameson uh, talks about famously in his analysis of postmodernism, all of that is we would now think of as almost all that we think of as passe. So, we've moved beyond that moment uh, in, in that sense. And in terms of our scholarship, what we've done, unfortunately, I think that there are two. Well, maybe three competing trends. On the one hand, there are people who, what they learned from post-structuralism was a kind of poetry that became a kind of acting like, sort of, instead of dealing with the real philosophical issues that uh, I think are powerful and important that Derrida and Foucault and company brought up, a lot of people just adopted their style. And so there became a lot of superficial theory literature that wasn't very good. A, a backlash against that became, has become a kind of real particularism, which is even worse, the anti-theory movement. And that's in part what I'm pushing against in religious studies. People decided they didn't need theory. They were just historians. They just looked at archives or whatever. But what all that meant is that their own theoretical commitments were unexamined and that they were often re-entrenching these very naive categories. And then lately, uh, and then there's been a backlash of people who want to return toward enlightenment as some kind of universal. I don't think either of those three options is going to get us very far. I think uh, the, the particularism causes balkanization and fragmentation in the disciplines, and we can't read each other's work. It leads toward a hyper-specialized world in which most of the work is irrelevant, uh, uh, but is just more paper. Uh, a lot of the post-structuralist wordplay stuff doesn't get us anywhere, too, because it hasn't really 
extensively developed or worked out the right philosophical issues. And then the, the, the return, the call toward enlightenment in a naive sense toward a world of facts without criticizing or understanding the complexities that are involved in the genesis of the modern fact, to borrow a phrase from uh, the, the philosopher of science Fleck, uh, Ludwig Fleck, um, that isn't going to work either because it's, it's a straw man. We're producing straw man facts that are too easy to knock down. So the question then becomes, if all those three current threads aren't working, what ways could we have to move forward? And the argument that I put forward in that book is a way to move past postmodernism by radicalizing it. In a way, granting some of its critical conclusions, but uh, taking them in a way either further um, or, uh, or causing them to reorient ourselves on that thinking. To give an example from Hegel, um, what I, so, um, people talk about the Hegel Hegelian dialectic in the wrong way. They attribute a dialectic that's more like Schelling to Hegel, and they say it's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That's not what Hegel argued. A better summary of Hegel's dialectic is a limited abstraction followed by a negation, followed by a negation of a negation. Uh, and what's interesting to me is not that Hegel's a master theorist. I use him only for one very short chapter, but, it, but, but I think it's in a very important move. Hegel is very interested in the way that certain kinds of philosophy can move in the face of skepticism. And I think that's what the, the interesting thing about the dialectic is. He's reacting to Hume's reaction to, con or, or Kant's reaction to Hume. Um, and what the negation of the negation is sometimes understood as, um, well, a bunch of different ways. There's a long debate in Hegel scholars. I think of it as a pivot on the foundations of the original claim while leaving certain uh, contradictions unresolved. So for example, uh, I think that what Hegel has in mind is, is, uh, is Kant's reading of Hume, in which Kant takes the very things that Hume thought were the sources of skepticism. Skepticism about our capacity to fully know the modern world, uh, you know, to, to, for, for empirical, empirical knowledge to fully know the world uh, or, or understand the depths of causation, et cetera. And then Kant says, let's grant those, but then he locates those in the noumena famously, right? So he, he wants to say, let's move forward while granting uh, some of the skepticism. So what I want to do is, what I'm doing in that project is disaggregating, uh, uh, let's say, postmodernism, for lack of a better term, into three areas. Uh, one, uh, a crisis of ethics, of which I think we don't actually have a crisis of ethics the way we thought we did. Uh, as I've said, I think a call toward a new kind of discussion of value uh, is the answer to that. Uh, second, uh, a, a kind of issue around general skepticism. That's an easier one to solve. That's, I'm not the first to say this, but in, the, in uh, most of analytic philosophy in the most recent periods, people have become fallibilists. They've granted the limitedness of knowledge. They may oh, have, maybe they overweight what they're capable of in terms of knowledge. They may not fully internalize a lot of skepticism, but I think we can grant a kind of fallibilistic knowledge uh, and move forward. And then third, I, what I want to do is bring to bear a set of new techniques for studying intellectual categories in the process of transformation and decay. I'll give you one example. In religious studies, uh, we have gotten very, very worried about the term religion itself. Uh, we've shown that it has a particular European history and trajectory. It includes a binary opposition between the religious and the secular, which it can't sustain. Things are always crossing or collapsing that binary. Um, and we've learned, in effect, that the way that category, it, it's hollow. It's a, it's a messy category. What we don't know in religious studies is that many other disciplines have undergone similar crises. So, for example, in art history, there was an extensive challenge to the notion of art already in the 1950s. Religious studies, we think we're innovating this, but it was like 20 years later. Um, or, uh, you know, we can talk about the, the concept of culture under critique in certain sectors of anthropology or uh, a fight in the 90s about the cult category of society and sociology. All these intellectual master categories uh, have, have a fall apart. They, they, they break down. In part, I'm going to argue because they're, they're human kinds and there's a confusion about human kinds and natural kinds. And the way that we segregate the social or the humanities and the social sciences doesn't work, as I was telling you earlier to circle back to our conversation. So the disciplinary, um, the disciplines have, 
divided up a heterogeneous space full of um, accident, but also full of these unfolding, what I think of them as kind of unfolding processes. Uh, I'd have to say a little bit more about why I call them processes. Um, and because we've assumed that they're natural kinds, that they naturally divide up human experience, we constantly are able to show that they, that doesn't actually map onto human experience. Art is a messy category, it's historically conditioned, et cetera. And we, but we think we're deepening our knowledge of art. What we're actually doing is coming to, 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 to um, get ourselves entangled in a particular historical trajectory. So what I want to do is talk about is to take a step back beyond those categories. Admittedly, this is itself a category that will be later subject to critique, but that's okay. And talk about, I've been talking about these, and my formulation for it isn't perfect, but high entropic processes or high entropic assemblages. And I'm borrowing something from information theory about the nature of complex thought. And I want to look at how we can talk about them in particularity um, and how we can begin to sort of step, to, to think of ourselves within a certain kind of conceptual horizon. So uh, what it does is it brings up a lot of issues around the, about, around translation, around comparison uh, around even uh, what we think of as human kinds versus natural kinds. And what I think I'm able to show, what I'm hoping you're able to show, and this is the part I'm writing now, so I'm the most you know, sort of fuzzy about it, but um, I think I, I, there, it gives us a new way to think about our toolkit uh, as scholars, particularly as sort of humanities and social science folk moving forward, uh, inhabiting uh, conceptual things that we can't really, we don't want to throw out, but we also want to both have a, have, we want to explode them, but, it, but strategically and in the right way. To kind of see what they're hiding, but also uh, allow them to do certain kinds of conceptual work. They fit certain kinds of patterns, and we have certain ways of understanding. And what we're really doing is looking for kinds of patterns. So um, what we want to be able to do is kind of deepen our knowledge of those in a historically conditioned way. Okay, amazing. <laughs> Sorry, that thank was too you, fast. Thank yeah. you, thank you for everything you've shared with us. You, we've just blown through this time. Oh, I want really? to, th I, <laughs> I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It was really interesting. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, I rambled there at the end. No, no problem. I've been speaking with Jason Josephson Storm, Chair and Associate Professor of Religion at Williams College. Josephson Storm gave a talk based on the myth of disenchantment, magic, modernity, and the birth of the human sciences at U of O on May 3rd, 2018 as a uh, guest of the Department of Religious Studies. Thanks again for watching.